Morning, how you doing? Morning. Hey, there we go. Dave, it's good to see you, man. Uh, my name is Joe. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. I work with uh, a ministry that we started not too long ago called The Greenhouse, which um, is focused on college-age and young adults. Hey, we, before these guys step off, we wanted to have a quick contest, if you will. Just if you would rate our beards for us. Um, <laughs> Garrett, Cooper, myself, you can go ahead and email mark at newhopehazlet.com. I got permission from Derek. He doesn't get enough email anyway, so he probably would appreciate that from you. Um, but on a serious note, you know, it was really awesome to be able to ce- celebrate the, uh, the incarnation of Jesus um, on Christmas Eve as a church. And, and then we had all kinds of guests. If you're back with us from that, we're glad you, you're here again. But I just thought, you know, one of the things you can do is just thank the people that served. Send an email to Mark, Michael, to any of the people that were on the worship team. They spent a lot of time and energy on that. And um, it's just a great opportunity for us to just to be thankful and uh, communicate thanks. Also want to welcome the online audience. We're glad you joined us too. Um, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, we're, we're thankful that this morning that we um, get a chance again to be a part of, of this church and to read and, and look more at, uh, at your word and how it applies to our life. And we know that you want to do something in our lives. God, you're at work, and we, we want to yield to you. And so we pray this morning that you would speak to us, and that you would take your word, and you would make it come alive, and you would cause it to stick. And we would walk out of here with something that you want us to do, something that you want us to think about, something that you want to encourage us with. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I say this guy's name, Gary Habermas, the only reason you would know his name is if you geek out on Christian apologetics and Christian theology. He'd be regarded as an expert when it comes to defending uh, one of the core tenets of our faith, the resurrection. He got a PhD from MSU, which is kind of cool. He did, his, he did his doctorate work in uh, the resurrection. He wrote his dissertation on that. And then he's got another doctorate in divinity from a small, obscure college called Emmanuel College in Oxford, England. MSU, Oxford, you know, both of them are prestigious. He's authored 13 books. At least seven of them are about the resurrection of Christ. So all that to say, this guy has done his homework. His life work has been teaching and defending this core doctrine of the faith. And well, you, you know what's interesting in my mind when I read uh, about a guy like this is um, some of his personal life. He, he, when he was married for 22 years, which is a, about the same amount of time I've been married, his wife Debbie began the fight of her life with stomach cancer. And as his wife was suffering, Gary was forced to stare at all his life work and see if the truth of the resurrection had the power to help him as he was losing the love of his life. And that's what the next section of 1 Thessalonians is all about. It's the hope of the resurrection for all of those who are in Christ. If you remember, if you're new with us, we've been trekking through this letter. Paul started this church, um, and he was chased out of town by an angry mob. And while he's tied up in another city, he, he wrote a letter back to these young Christ followers, and he's encouraging them in their faith. I've titled this series, The Church at Her Best, Because we see a group of people whose lives are transformed by the power of the gospel. They went from serving and worshiping false gods and idols to serving and worshiping 
the true and living God, Jesus Christ. And as God transformed their lives, the effect of that transformation was felt all over this entire region. There was a ripple effect because of the transformed life. And as we've worked our way through this letter, we've seen Paul encouraging this church, and he just encourages and encourages and he encourages. And he's going to do that again today. He's going to weave together a hope and encouragement sandwich for us. Hope, grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. He's going to provide teaching about the parousia, which is the second coming of Christ. And then he's going to challenge this church to encourage each other with these truths, to remind each other, to hold them out to each other, to kind of keep them on the forefront of their minds. And so we start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. If you have a Bible, you can flip your way there. If you have a web-enabled device, you can tap your way there. Verse 13, Paul says this. He says this, but, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who, who have no hope. And so just to begin with, Paul just begins to start teaching this, this young church. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who are asleep. That word asleep means in the Greek more than just taking a nap. It's a euphemism for death. And so Paul is saying that those who have fallen asleep are those who have died. And so Paul is just giving solid teaching to these young believers of what happens after death to a Christian. He's still laying the foundation for this church. You gotta remember, this isn't a church culture. This church doesn't have like a Jewish foundation either. They have, the only Jewish roots they have are Paul. They came out, uh, they came to faith out of a pagan Roman culture. There aren't generations of Christians to look to for answers and there isn't a completed New Testament yet either. Churches are still circulating letters that the apostles have written to each other. And so Paul writes to infuse this church with truth that's meant to instill and to stir up hope. Because without a clear understanding of what happens to a believer in Jesus when they die, we're all left with a sense of confusion and hopelessness. The last time I checked, the death rate still hovers around 100%. Now, I said that last night, and someone corrected me. There were two people in the Old Testament that escaped death. Okay, I'll give that to you. In other words, unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, we will all taste death. The train is coming for all of us. Did you notice how we just missed the timing of that? Oh my gosh, I wanted that so bad. You know, for many, just the thought of death can evoke fear. For all generations since the fall, death has plagued life. Our mortality is inevitable. Uh, the writer of one letter in the New Testament says this. It's in, in the book of Hebrews. He says that Jesus came to deliver us who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is the enemy of all humanity. Now, if you follow Larry King at all, you know that every time he seems to be interviewed, he always talks about his fear of death. 
I read an article just recently, and this is what he, he said in this interview. He says, I want to be frozen in the hope that they'll find whatever I died of and bring me back. He went on in this interview and he said this, my biggest fear is death because I don't think I'm going anywhere. And since I don't think that and I don't have a belief, I'm afraid. He says, I'm married to someone who has the belief so she knows she's going somewhere. And what I love about Larry is I just love his honesty. He just put out there what most people are thinking. They're afraid to die because they don't know where they're going. Now, the, the strain of death on us isn't just our own personal fears. We struggle with death because of, a, of the grief that it causes us too, right? I mean, the fear that we'll lose those we love. And that's what's going on back in Thessalonica. These people are ignorant of the hope of the resurrection for all believers, and so they're grieving like those who don't have hope. This is what we see in the second part of this verse, verse 13 again. But we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep or who have died in Christ, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul doesn't want these believers in Jesus to grieve like the pagan world around them. But Paul's not saying don't grieve. I mean, grief is a normal and healthy way of processing loss. And when we experience any kind of loss, we need to grieve. And especially the loss of the people that we've had relationship with, the people that we've loved. Even for the Christian, death still brings with it a sense of loss and grief. And so Paul isn't saying that Christians aren't to grieve, but that we aren't to grieve as people without hope. You ever been to a funeral of someone who, who wasn't a Christian? I mean, there's just this cloud of hopelessness that kind of hovers over the family. For them, it's just an overwhelming sense of loss and nothing more. Because outside of Jesus, there is no hope. That word hope is, is a big deal. And as Pastor Mark has been working his way through the book of Romans, every time he kind of comes to that word, he, he gets, he gets a chance to highlight it. And I just feel like, you know, there isn't like this overwhelming, uh, you know, uh, amount of hope that we, we have in our lives. And so I figured, let's just talk about it. Let's look at it again here this morning. Here's what the word means when it's used in the New Testament. Hope in the Greek is the word elpis, and it means a confident expectation of a future reality. And the sense of the word is this. It's a reasonable and confident expectation of a future event. In other words, it's not wishful thinking or dreaming. It's rock-solid confidence in a future. Hope gives us confidence that the promises Jesus gave us will one day become a reality. When he said he was going to prepare a place for us, that one day we could be where he is in John 14, he wasn't joking. He made a promise, and one day he'll fulfill that promise. He is our hope. But again, many in our culture talk about the afterlife, and Jesus is nowhere in the picture. One of my favorites is the, the poet Zach Brown. 
When Zach wrote that he's going to see his old man again after his old man has died. I mean, he has no basis for that. Or another one is Carrie Underwood. She sings, I will see you again. Oh, whoa, whoa. This is not where it ends. Oh, whoa, whoa. But the reality is, apart from Jesus, there's no seeing loved ones again. There's no hope beyond the grave. And I know that's very exclusive to make that statement, but it makes sense when you fully grasp the gospel message. The gospel message says that we're all sinners and that God is holy. And the only ones that can exist with God are ones that are like him. He can only be around sinlessness, perfection, holiness. And the only way a sinner can be made holy is to allow Jesus to make him or her that way. Jesus came to rescue us from separation from God in this life and for eternity. He's the only rescuer. There's no one else that's coming. There's no one else who can save you from your wrongdoing. And so we need Jesus to take all of our wrongs away, to wipe all of our sin away, and to give us his righteousness. Then and only then can we stand in the presence of a holy God forever. And that's why the Christian faith makes exclusive claims. It's not like we want to be exclusive for the sake of being exclusive. It's just reality. The only way around it is to bend the truth, to twist it somehow. And when you do that, all you do is deceive people. If you want to love people, you hold truth out to them and you don't pull any punches. You speak it in love but you don't, you don't water it down. You don't cut corners. Because the truth is, Jesus alone can rescue you and me and your family and your friends and this world. And so as, as we look to a new year, I, I'm the kind of person who loves uh, to hit the reset button of the new year. I, I'm, I'm the kind of person that looks at all the goals that I had this last year, and, and many of them I didn't even pursue at all. And just think, you know what? I'm moving forward. I'm looking ahead. And so if you've never put your faith in Jesus, where you've trusted in his finished work, that everything that you needed was finished for you on the cross, if you've never done that, man, I challenge you to make this the year that you pursue. Maybe you, you've never looked deeply into who Jesus is. There's four biographies in this book about Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Pick one of them and spend some time just investigating who Jesus is. Wouldn't it be worth your time to know the truth? One more quick exhortation. We, we shouldn't be surprised when the, the unbelieving world around us lives the way it does. When you take a culture and you strip away its entire foundation for hope, which is what's happened over the last several decades in our country, people without Jesus don't know where to turn when their world falls apart. And the reality is, at different times, all of our worlds fall apart to some degree. 
And so they medicate and they numb themselves because they haven't been given any alternative options that work. And so I'm not making excuses, but what I am doing is I'm giving myself and you an understanding. And when we have a greater understanding, it should create compassion inside of us for those around us. I mean, Jesus, when he looked at the crowds, he saw that they were, he had compassion on them. He saw that they were like helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And that compassion moved him to do something. And it needs to move us as well. We have the hope that they need. And let's make this the year that we work hard and we love creatively and courageously to get that hope to our friends who need it most. Okay, so Paul starts out with encouragement. Hope for followers of Jesus who are still alive and for those who have lost family and friends who have fallen asleep in Christ. Look where he goes next. Verse 14. He says this. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so Paul doesn't just start out with hope, but he anchors it to the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know if you realize this, but, but our faith rests on the foundation of the resurrection. If you were to flip over to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes the case that if the resurrection didn't happen, we are all sinners out of luck. Listen to what he says. He says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so Paul would say, the resurrection is everything to our faith. Listen to what one scholar who agrees with Paul says about this. The God who raised Jesus will also raise Jesus' followers it is Jesus' resurrection that validates the gospel and guarantees the believer's resurrection. I love what John MacArthur has to say about the resurrection too. He says this, the resurrection has massive implications. Everybody dies, but only one has the power to raise himself from the dead. It's obvious to the enemy of our souls that the resurrection is critical. It's the linchpin that holds everything together. It's the cornerstone without which the building collapses. And that's why I think the resurrection is often mocked, scorned, denied, and sometimes just ignored. As if it were not of such importance to warrant a deep consideration. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely critical. And since the resurrection is the fulcrum on which our hope rests, I thought I'd spend just a couple moments sharing with you a, a few pieces of, of evidence for the resurrection. We started this, 
today off with this story about Gary Habermas's life. Well, we, I just thought we could look to him because he is our resident expert uh, as it relates to the resurrection. And so this is what he says. He says, here's how I look at the evidence for the resurrection. He says, first, did Jesus die on a cross? That's the first thing we need to settle. And we're not going to look at that in a ton of detail right now. But Jesus' death has been studied and examined by experts in the area of medicine. There's a great article if you want to Google the physical death of Jesus from the Journal of the American Medical Association. And the beating and the crucifixion that Jesus experienced was conclusively fatal. We read in John's Gospel that a Roman soldier thrust a spear into Jesus' side. And according to that journal article, the blood and the water that flowed from where Jesus was pierced confirmed that he was dead. And if you remember, that's why the soldier didn't break Jesus' legs. Okay, so Jesus died on a cross. The second thing, this is what Habermas says, his second thought Did he appear later to people? If you can establish those two things, you've made your case because dead people don't normally do that. Well, we know from the Gospels that Jesus revealed himself to many different individuals and groups of people after his resurrection. And and that evidence is compelling in and of itself. We have at least nine separate encounters documented in the Gospels and the book of Acts. But the evidence that, that Habermas leans into comes out of a creed that Paul quotes in Go Figure, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That creed tells us that Jesus appeared after his death and showed himself to Cephas, which is Peter's Aramaic name, and the 12, and to 500 others. And then he appeared to to James, and then to the apostles, and then Paul says that last of all, he appeared to me. And so Paul wanted to make it clear that many of those 500 people that saw Jesus after he'd raised from the dead, they were still alive when he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. And so if, if what Paul was writing wasn't true, they could be like, hey, uh-uh, I didn't see that. No, we, there's no evidence for that. And so you could go and you could corroborate what actually happened with lots of witnesses who actually saw the risen Savior. And so that's where Gary Habermas lands in his defense of the resurrection. But I have one more thing. See, not only do we have these eyewitness accounts, but we also see a distinct change in Jesus' followers from the time of his death when everything they hoped for was lost. When Jesus died on the cross, what the original followers of Jesus thought he was going to be and do, their, their hopes were just dashed. And Peter went back to being a commercial fisherman. But something changed. They went from hopelessness and going back to previous careers to seeing something, seeing the risen Savior, and then giving their lives for the sake of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so the encouragement Paul wants you and I and the Thessalonian Christians to have today is first, to have hope in your own resurrection because of Jesus. 
And then second, to have the hope that you will see those who have put their faith in Jesus beyond the grave. The grave is not the end for anyone. Everyone will be resurrected to either be with Jesus or to be separated from him forever. Let that sink in for a moment. Everyone will be resurrected either to be with Jesus and have eternal life or to be separated from God for eternity. That is a daunting thought. And so Paul starts with encouragement. He gives us foundation by anchoring the hope that we have to the resurrection. And then what he's going to do now is he's going to give us the Cliff Notes version of what it will be like when Jesus returns. Paul's goal in writing this wasn't to give us a complete theology about the second coming of Christ. His goal, again, was to encourage these people. And so here's what he writes, verse 15. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so here are the highlights. Paul says the dead in Christ will be resurrected before those who are still alive at Christ's return. You'll notice he says this two different times. And there's a reason he did this. It's because this church was wrestling They were wrestling with what happens to the person who dies as a Christian. Jesus returns. Are they out of luck? And Paul's like, no way. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to descend with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. That's the first, you know, kind of big thing that's going to happen. Then the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are still alive will be caught up in the air to meet Jesus. And then he says, we'll always be with the Lord. Some of the most exciting words that we will experience in our lives. You ever thought about what it's going to be like to be with Jesus? I mean, no more, no more pain. No more lower back pain. No more suffering. No more suffering the separation and the loss and the grief of loved ones. No more suffering from our struggle with sin. No more tears. No more sadness. No more death. Reunited with your loved ones who have died in Christ. I mean, it's going to be a party. I was thinking this morning, how long is this party going to go on? We might spend a thousand years just with our introductory party. It's going to be worth all the sacrifice. 
All that you've done to serve Jesus and advance God's kingdom, you won't regret any of it. So Paul ends this this section like this. He says in verse 18, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so what he's saying is, hey, when we're together, we should be like, hey, don't forget, Jesus is coming back. You have hope, a confident expectation of a future event. You're going to be raised from the dead one day. You're going to see your loved ones again who have died in Christ. And so here's what I want to do. I want to end with three applications and I want to finish the story from Gary Habermas's life. First application is because we have this hope, we don't grieve like those who don't have the hope of the resurrection. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. One day we'll be reunited with those who have died in Christ. We grieve with hope. And then two, because we have this hope, we live pure lives. John said this in 1 John chapter 3. He said, beloved, we are God's children now. If you're in Christ, you're a child of God. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, Perusia, the second coming, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. Purifies himself as he is pure. And so what does it mean to purify yourself? Well, it means that we move away from things that are impure. Impure thinking. Impure actions and and activities. And impure words. See, the hope of the resurrection actually propels us to become more like Jesus. And our third application is because we have this hope, we leverage our lives for the sake of the gospel. I love this quote from John Piper. He says this, or to put it another way, the great obstacle to a life of sacrificial, risk-taking love for other people is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. He says that the dead are not raised. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if the resurrection didn't happen, we might as well just live it up. Piper goes on, he says, in other words, without a hope for resurrection and everlasting joy with Christ, we all tend to treat this life as a place where we have to squeeze out as much pleasure as we can and take as few risks as we can because there is nothing else. And so because we have the hope of the resurrection, we're to be different. And so the challenge for us is to give our lives away as we love and serve our king, just to give them away No reason to wait to be generous or to take risks in loving people or initiating gospel conversations. Give it away. You know, if I was a coach and we were sitting in a halftime, I would say, 
you know, when we get back out there, we should leave it all in the field. Don't hold anything back. That's how the hope of the resurrection motivates daily living. So as, as Gary Habermas was losing the love of his life, he shared this. But you know what was amazing? My students would call me, not just one, but several of them, and say, at a time like this, Gary, aren't you glad about the resurrection? And as sober as those circumstances were, I had to smile for two reasons. First, my students were trying to cheer me up with my own teaching. And second, it worked. He said this, I knew if God were to come to me, I'd ask only one question. Lord, why is Debbie up there in bed suffering and dying? And I think God would respond by asking gently, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? And I say, come on, Lord. I've written seven books on this topic. Of course he was raised from the dead. But I want to know about Debbie. I think he just could keep coming back to the same question. Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? Did I raise my son from the dead? Until I got the point. The resurrection says that if Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, there's an answer to Debbie's death. And you know what? It worked. It worked for me while I was sitting on that porch, and it still works for me today. It was a horribly emotional time for me, and I, but I couldn't get around the fact that the resurrection is the answer for her suffering. I still worried. I still wondered what I'd do raising four kids alone. But there wasn't a time when that truth didn't comfort me. He said, losing my, my wife was the most painful experience I've ever had to face. But if the resurrection could get me through that, it could get me through anything. Gary ended like this. He said, that's not some sermon. I believe that with all my heart. If there's a resurrection, there's a heaven. If Jesus was raised, Debbie was raised. And I will someday too. Then I'll see them both. Because Jesus was raised, if you're in Christ, one day you will be too. That's real hope. That's a confident expectation of a future reality. And that's what we're to encourage each other with. Let's pray. We're so thankful, Father, that we have a faith that rests on rock solid evidence. You're an awesome God. You didn't want us to believe blindly. 
You gave us so much. And the challenge, I think, for us is to spend the time to, to build our faith up by looking into the evidence. Pray that today, God, you would, you would encourage us with these words. You would comfort. You would remind us um, of what you've done and what we have in Christ. And that we would be able to encourage each other. And we're thankful for Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us today. You guys have a great week.